Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Cryer, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Hi, this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast, and welcome to our year-end review. Based on listener requests, we are releasing each of our eight year-end interviews as what we call an extrasode, a 20 to 25-minute piece covering a single topic. This extrasode is with Ian Rowe, who will discuss some of his work with patients in Leeds and what he's learned about patient satisfaction, cost-effectiveness, and testing strategies for NAFLD and NASH patients. Louise Campbell and I are the questioners, and we begin. This part of our end-of-year discussion is with Ian Rowe, who's been with us several times, talking about work he's doing in Leeds, what it's like to run a hepatology clinic during the pandemic, and some really interesting analysis on the study involving U.S. death records in 2017. Ian, glad you're with us today. Yeah, pleased to be here. It's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a fun year on the podcast, but different <laughs> in real life, I think. It's been an interesting year everywhere, right? We're asking folks to comment on important lessons they've learned this year and how they might shape going forward in 2021. I thought it might be interesting for you to talk a little bit about your project in Leeds. Make sure that everybody who maybe did not catch that podcast knows what you're doing there and then what you've learned and where you're headed. Thanks very much, Roger. And I think the project in, in Leeds started when we began to think about how we might better identify patients with liver disease in the community. And when we were talking to our colleagues in the biochemistry department about simply how many tests were being done. So we look back over the course of three years now, all of the liver blood tests done in the community. So Leeds is a city of about 800,000 people, just over 600,000 adults. And over the course of three years, there were just short of a million liver blood tests done across the whole city, which means that on average, um, each adult's having more than one liver blood test, although not every adult is having one. And when you dig into that, you see that about a quarter of those tests, one of the analytes is abnormal. But relatively rarely, those abnormalities are acted on in terms of referral into secondary care. And that really highlights the, the issue with liver blood testing as a way of identifying liver disease in people who are at risk, because in the context of frequently abnormal results, Often those results are simply ignored, I think, uh, because the significance isn't recognised because the reality is that many of those patients, nearly all of them, in fact, don't suffer liver-related morbidity or mortality. So there is no sort of stimulus for the primary care clinician or recognition that an abnormal test has led to a liver disease event particularly when the event may be somewhat distant in time. So to try and address that, we've built a pilot study to begin to do direct fibrosis testing in a proportion of people who are um, identified in primary care. And we've done that using a, a two-step approach. So using FIB4 as a simple, cheap rule-out test, and then using ELF in the community for the primary care practitioner to look more carefully in those people where fibrosis isn't excluded. Following a positive health, then those patients are referred to our community fibroscan service. And that's one of the things that has developed quite quickly in the context of a COVID, where access to the hospital clinic has been restricted. So we've now established a sort of one-stop diagnostic clinic where people come and have further blood tests and ultrasound scan if it's needed and a fibre scan on the day to evaluate the severity of any liver disease that's present so that people can then come to a clinic um, or indeed have that clinic done by telephone to, you know, to understand whether they're at risk of significant liver disease in the near to medium term. 
So we're seeing the right patients at the right time, patients where there is no real evidence of significant liver disease by, as measured by fibrosis, can be managed in primary care by their primary care practitioner in the way that addresses all of their risk factors for liver disease, whether that's alcohol-related liver disease or indeed fatty liver disease. And it's been quite eye-opening simply to see how much testing there is and how that impacts on services in primary care and how receptive primary care has been by and large to the changes in the service that we've put into place so that you know I hope that we're making their job easier by better identification of patients and by offering those patients easier access to full diagnostic testing. And and you've been producing some research. Yeah, so we've done this this sort of pilot study as a as a service development, but we've been able to analyze it alongside and this is really to generate some data so that we can both support uh, support ongoing um, commissioning or payment essentially for that pathway, but also as we begin to think about whether there are better ways to do identification and testing for liver disease in primary care from a formal research project perspective. We presented some of that data at the ASLD meeting, the digital meeting um, in November, and you know we see that it's quite easy to show that you can identify more liver disease in the community and you can do so more efficiently. So fewer blood tests and cheaper so patients come to the clinic at the right time so that they can have their liver disease managed. If I recall, it wasn't only that it was less expensive, but patients like the experience better as well. Yeah, so that's one of the other aspects that I haven't mentioned is that there has been a sort of outreach from the hospitals. Several of my colleagues have been going out now into primary care to deliver that service. So before COVID, they were going out and seeing the patient in primary care with the fibre scanner and doing it in the clinic themselves that day. And I'm sure that Louise would agree there's the sort of immediate feedback of knowing you know, what you've done, showing the patient the report and that sort of joint, that conversation then about what the report means. Um, and I think that that, that helps. The, the change with COVID in establishing a sort of outpatient diagnostic hub where patients go has changed the organisation of the service. So what we evaluated and presented is a bit different now. And whether we go back to a hospital consultant delivered service in primary care or the way stick with that model, I think will depend on both the efficiencies, but also on how patients view the service. Are we learning anything so far about how patients view the service? So that work is, is ongoing because the service change is sort of in, in progress. So we don't have any information yet about that, but it's being evaluated in parallel. Okay, this is a very unresearchy, unquantitative question, particularly for, from a statistician to a researcher. If you had a guess, do you have any sense of how it might turn out and why? I, I think that people People would like to go and, you know, have their tests in one place and have it all done on one day. But I think that the information being given remotely to that evaluation is probably not optimal. And I would judge that because we're getting a number of telephone calls between the day of the evaluation and the day that they're subsequently spoken to or seen in the clinic. So I think that disconnection between the diagnostic evaluation and reviewing the patient is probably not ideal. So I suspect that they will prefer to have that delivered in one in one sitting. Louise, why don't you go ahead? Um, yeah. No, I, I find it fascinating. And of course, um, it's exactly why I eventually left the NHS to get out there earlier to be able to do exactly what Ian's doing now and argue for that point. And I think the research that he presented at Arsenal showed that it was more cost effective. I think if you remove barriers to patients getting diagnosed for liver disease, you also remove people who don't attend. Of the ones who you came through, were you able to calculate how many didn't need to be referred on their abnormal liver tests? Um, purely because I we did some stuff at Imperial and I reviewed over 8,000 scans. And for those patients who were referred just for abnormal 
liver function tests or query fatty liver disease. When they presented and we fibro scanned them, 92% of those patients were sent back to the primary care physician to say, you just need to manage locally. They've purely got um, excess fat and send them back in a few years if you have a problem. Did FIB4 and ELF manage to remove that sort and make it far more accurate? And were you still sending some back? So it reduces it, but it doesn't eliminate that completely. I guess that's for, that's for a number of reasons. And in the sort of iteration that we presented, patients were having FIB4 and ELF and then um, elastography, and we and we're using the fibre scan as the arbiter test. You know, so if the alpha is a bit high and you have a fibre scan that's low, then we tend to believe the fibre scan. Now, sometimes that won't be right, but you know that's the way that we've really been practicing. Some patients will go on and have a biopsy if there's continuing diagnostic uns- uncertainty. So, you know, doing that sequential approach does reduce a lot of that sort of unnecessary review of people who simply got abnormal liver blood tests but no evidence of liver fibrosis who, you know, my view is are are best managed in primary care. And I think one of the things that we need to consider as a field is about, you know, what diagnosis and commas we give to those patients, you know, about how useful a diagnosis of fatty liver without fibrosis is to that individual, whether it does promote behavior change in terms of their other metabolic risk factors. And that's that's work that I think is important to do. And, and it's something that we're trying to, you know, think about building into our research projects that that will come from the from the work that we're already doing. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's right. And, it, and you're ta- and yeah, you're taking that data because I think um, there was evidence certainly at Arsenal that baseline steatosis in a cardiac study um, was was related to 70% increase in in cardiovascular events. And that was just simple steatosis. And certainly my experience is that eight to nine out of 10 patients do change their behavior when you're talking to them. But it's that continued ability, if you can manage it, to do enough scans regularly to keep that motivation. Yeah. And that that lasting behavior change is what's ultimately going to make the biggest difference to the patients, you know, in a sort of non-pharmacological way. That's why I think those patients are, are best managed in primary care if we can, you know, provide the tools to primary care that those patients have appropriate continued monitoring and re-referral for assessment of liver disease if there is a suspicion that fibrosis is developing or they're at risk of events. Going forward, do you see this expanding in the way that I think you've described really well, that local assessment of tests? And I think it depends who's doing the test, if you've got a consultant out locally or whether you've got a nurse specialist or whether or not you've got a healthcare assistant who can purely talk about you've had your scan and the results will be given to you at later date? Is it about the level of knowledge out there? But given some of these fibre scan lists are now in excess of 12 months long, we're going to miss HCC, we're going to miss decompensating cirrhotics. How do we get what you're showing works very well and is cost effective into mainstream healthcare? So those, I think, are really important points. And I'd say there are a few things about that. So we found 11% of people had an abnormal ALT. So out of that 1 million tests and over three years, that's 100,000 abnormal tests. And that's that's not manageable. We can't, we cannot do that. So we have to provide primary care with the tools to identify those people at the greatest risk. I think for the reasons that you've said about the waiting times for elastography and the sort of ready access to blood testing, it's my view that it would be much better if we can provide a blood-based biomarker with good accuracy that's also cheap to primary care, you know, to build into their pathway so that they can identify those patients at greatest risk. Now, you know, we're using FIB4. It's not perfect, um, but it's probably good enough for now while we try and get something that's better. So 
as a resident of the U.S., I feel compelled to say the economics that we wrestle with over here, or in fact, most of the rest of the developed world wrestles with, are somewhat different than the uh, economics you folks wrestle with. I think it, it's an important caveat listening to this part of the discussion. That said, if the blood tests were not so inexpensive, were, say, something commercially single-sourced, I know these things don't cost the same thing, ELF, NIST for CT1, or Pro-C3, medically it would make sense, right, to, to get a more precise blood marker in the middle. Will the economics of that work in the UK, or, or does it have to be a cheap test, even if it's not a good test? So it depends on the context of use. I hate that expression, but it, it, it really does depend on how and where you're going to use it. If you're going to use it for a sort of population-level screen where the probability of finding significant disease is extremely low, then I don't think that that will ever work because you'd have to screen, you know, you've got to screen everybody and the number of people presenting with you know, with liver disease, it's, it's not that high. If you're talking about targeted testing in the context of alcohol-related liver disease or fatty liver disease, then it's possible that it'll work. But from a cost-effectiveness perspective, it has to show that it changes the intervention that's given. You know, for alcohol-related liver disease, that is, you know, reducing alcohol consumption and stopping drinking. And in fatty liver disease, as it stands today, it's diet and weight loss. And until we have better interventions, cost-effectiveness piece for screening interventions for liver disease that are costly is is challenging because the, you know, the, the number of people who present and the number of events that you can therefore prevent will be low. So any cost will will always appear high on a per patient basis. It's definitely a, bit, a big challenge. And I think in the patients with diabetes where the pretest probability of advanced liver disease or advanced fibrosis is slightly higher, then you know, I know that people have made an argument for that. And Mazen Muradin has um, you know, done analyses that they uh, published in Gastro looking at that. I'm still not convinced personally that, it'll, it would certainly, that it would work in a UK perspective, nor am I actually particularly convinced that it is yet cost-effective. Yeah, somewhere back in episodes, we talked about the specific challenge of maintaining compliance over time. Even in primary care. Well, everyone else on that meeting, except for me, was a practitioner, okay? Either Louise or the rest of the world physicians. Everyone who treated agreed that you can get a patient to comply and you can hold them for a while, but you start to lose them over time. And one of the reasons was because the average length of time between uh, visits was every three months. And at that point, even if the visit is long enough to motivate, the time between visits isn't long enough to hold. How would you foresee making a dent in that? based on what you're seeing in the work that you're doing, right? So I think that's it's a very difficult issue, that. So the, if you look at the, the sort of the published studies on diet interventions for weight loss, and, you know, there are, there, are a lot, there are lots of them, you know, you often see that effect. You see an early weight loss that is sometimes sustained for a period of months, but often the weight is regained. And in the, you know, in the sort of commercial arenas where that's been tested, like Weight Watchers, you know, it's the same. And, 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 and in those, there is the availability of practitioner, inverted commas, um, involvement weekly, whether you, if you want it. But for whatever reason, it's, it's not sustained. Whether physician involvement more frequently is likely to lead to better outcomes, I don't know, but I would be sceptical for the same sorts of reasons. That sustained weight loss requires a continued personal sort of investment from the individual who is trying to lose weight or improve their physical activity. And that motivation, I think, is often quite easily lost. One of the really interesting questions that we don't know the answer to is whether a diagnosis of fatty liver disease, however it's given, and indeed whether it's reinforced with diagnostics, really impacts on patients' um, 
motivation to lose weight. When I was a student, there was a really sort of powerful study done in cardiovascular disease and people who just had myocardial infarction and they were given a very intensive diet and weight loss intervention to try and reduce cholesterol. And you saw the same thing. It reduced in the short term, but eventually it just returned back to the, to the baseline of their lipid-lowering therapy. Myocardial infarction is a very big event in somebody's life. You know, you tell them that they've had a heart attack. And yet, even with that stimulus, prolonged, you know, prolonged weight loss and lifestyle change is often not possible. So how we communicate the risk, the diagnosis, and how that impacts on behavior change, I think, is a really important question that, that the field needs to answer. So I don't know if you're familiar with Noom. They are a weight loss company based in the U.S., although they've got global clientele. Basically, their perspective is that weight loss is a behavioral issue, that the organ that leads you to gain weight is your mind, not your stomach. They work on some fairly interesting behavioral structures. They've been able to demonstrate that you can get to a 7% weight loss in 16 weeks and hold it at least at 5% for a year. And, and now it's a, it's a Korean study. I agree with you that physicians aren't trained to be able to provide that kind of support and counseling. But I wonder whether a challenge is to identify modalities and, and ways that we can get people support so that they can behave differently and manage themselves. Because they more people more people want to do this, they can keep getting it right, and we can spend hours on behavior. Yeah, I think I think I think that's I think that's right. And there are you know there are many many different diets and strategies for weight loss, and many of them show a similar uh, show similar efficacy. And the very low calorie diets, I think, are probably the most recent sort of relatively medical intervention that would also show and probably more weight loss than that, which is which is also sustained. And you know they they've shown quite nicely that that reduces liver fat in sort of a, a sort of unselected in inverted commas um, cohort of patients with or randomized trial with uh, patients with type 2 diabetes so there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be effective in Naffold and Nash but you're right I think giving patients the, the sort of the whole menu of uh, interventions and the time and space to explore those so that they can find the thing that's most effective for them is is definitely the you know best way for the you know for managing the whole patient you know reducing their cardiovascular risk and also improving their uh, liver outcomes and i agree with that wholeheartedly but i think it is about what's best for the patient and there are a lot of people who particularly who are overweight suffer from obesity who don't buy into this scenario that it's purely what you eat and the way you eat it and object to the stereotypes that all that medicine can come up with is lose weight move more and to be fair for the last 20 or 30 years telling people to lose weight eat better and move more has not stopped the obesity epidemic and we also know that 50 percent of those patients who are categorized obese have normal liver fat so it's not the entire picture and i think obviously we've got microbiomes there's all sorts of different research coming out and you can swap it same people with the same diet and swap them and they, they will do different things um, but i think the one thing that i see in patients certainly with fiber scan or with the time that nurses um, can spend is actually it is just spending time it is having somebody to talk to it is being able to know that they are in control rather than rely on a magic pill and one of the biggest fears I suppose I have about the magic pill fatty liver disease is that, oh, I can carry on eating what I like and doing what I like. The pill will sort it. And actually it doesn't. You still see a significant growth in fatty liver disease in some of these people, which is what we're seeing in the trials, which is what we see in placebo. So the patient has the power of individuals. We're all potentially patients. And with the number of people 
with fatty liver disease around the globe, one quarter of the globe is a fatty liver disease patient. We talked about from the perspectum data that everybody with COVID, Matt Kelly had described as a liver patient. So giving the power back and giving them the ability to take control instead of give it to healthcare. The patient role is a very well-defined psychological role that if you present to healthcare, we give you responsibility. <laughs> Actually, giving it back empowers people. I think that's what you're probably seeing when you go into your clinics with the fibre scan and with somebody going in. They want to stay in their local environment when you can provide it there. I think what you've said is really interesting. So a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for Lancet Gastro Hep about overdiagnosis of fatty liver disease. And some of the concerns that I had in that piece was about labelling people with a disease. And that brings in that risk that you medicalize them more than they're already medicalized in the context of diabetes. And, and so understanding at what point you give them the diagnosis, you know, is, is important. And, you know, and whether we really should be including steatosis, accepting that it probably does act as a marker of increased cardiovascular risk, you know, whether, whether that's sufficient to say you've got fatty liver disease or whether this is just a marker of metabolic ill health and how that alters behavior change, how it stops maybe people entering that patient role that you've that you've described. I think, as I said earlier, I think that's a really it's a really important question and one that we need to one that we need to address. And I think it would, in some ways, it would help to simplify the identification of patients in in primary care if we said, look, you don't, you know, you need to recognize this because it's important in terms of the whole patient, but this doesn't represent liver disease, so you don't need to focus on that aspect of it. Let's come back to finding better tools and really helping those patients who do have significant liver disease. I think that's a great note on which to end. I'm going to ask you one more question. What's the most interesting study you expect to come out of the Leeds work in 2021? So I think the most um, interesting and provocative study will be that I've got data now to suggest that it's not necessary to do ultrasound in people who have an abnormal ALT and metabolic risk factors because we know that they've got fatty liver and its uh, scan is just not necessary. That will be fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to having you back with us again next year. And thanks for everything you've done for the podcast this year. Louise, thanks for joining. Pleasure as always. This ends our extrasode with Ian Rowe. If you find this extrasode concept valuable, please let us know. And with that, enjoy your vacation and stay safe. See you in 2021 on the podcast.